Hello, everybody. Here we are today with Sebastian Murphy Bates, who <laughs> is an editor at the Daily Star. Previously at the Barking and Dagenham Post for two and a half years, and was living in Barking when Stephen Port, the grinder serial killer, was arrested. As part of his research for his book, Sebastian contacted Port while he was in prison, inventing a character to suit Port's desires. Oh my goodness, this sounds really dark and bizarre. It was so, a little bit dark. <laughs> yeah, well, what what possessed you then to write this book, Sebastian? I, I wrote the book basically because I was angry. I was really annoyed and upset at the way that the people of Barking and Dagenham have been treated. Barking is a part of East London that is not very affluent. Uh, it's uh, you know it's got it's got poverty issues. It's got crime issues. It's quite far out the centre of London, so it's not the sort of metropolis that you think of when you think of the capital city so life isn't perfect there as it is and when you've then got a police force that refuses to investigate four deaths four bodies that turned up within 400 yards of one another it just really annoyed me i was working at the local paper at the time i reported on stephen port's court case and i just couldn't believe the catalogue of failures so i thought i'd set it down in a book hopefully draw some more attention to it so you're saying that there's one law for victims if they're from what the police classify as important families versus there's other rules are applied if people are from for example poorer families or runaways or street people i don't think it's necessarily as simple as one rule for one one rule for another but what we do know about the stephen port case is that four young men turned up dead in a poor part of east london a very working class part of east london we, all, we know that they were all gay or bisexual. We know that they all were obviously murdered. This was obvious from the moment that the first body was found outside Stephen Port's flats. It looked like it had been dragged. It had bruising on it. The midriff was exposed. Uh, the phone was gone. It was a drug's death, GHB drug to be specific, which is a date rape drug. So it was obviously suspicious from the start. Now, when you've got all of these things screaming at you as a police officer and you don't investigate it, then people are going to start saying, well, is this because it's in a poor area? Is it because the victim's gay? And I think those things played into it, but I don't think it's, it's as simple as there's one rule for one, another rule for other people. What we do know as a test case compared with the Stephen Port case is that in 2008, a woman named Martine Magnuson was found in Fitzrovia. She was 23. She was found under some rubble in Fitzrovia. Now, Fitzrovia is an incredibly affluent part of London, one of the most affluent parts of the world. That was not only investigated, but... As late as last year, the Metropolitan Police were putting out an appeal for the guy who was suspected of doing it, who's now in um, Yemen, I believe, to, to come back to the UK and face justice. You know, the Queen got involved, the then Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, got involved, whereas in Barking, in this poor area, nothing of the sort happened. You know, there wasn't even rudimentary investigation, despite the suspicious circumstances. So I think that we have to acknowledge that that played some kind of role in this case. Yeah, definitely. But it's not as simple as that's always the case. So what does Stephen Port do to become known as the grinder killer? Stephen Port was somebody who contacted people on gay networking sites, including Grindr. There were other ones as well. And what he would do is lure them to his flat. Sometimes he'd post a false picture. And then once the unsuspecting victim was there, he would drug them with GHB 
Uh, he would rape them in some cases, and in four cases, he murdered them. Good grief. When he was not killing people then, did he have a job? Did he, you know, what, what kind of life did he have? What was his backstory? His his life basically went from sort of bog standard bloke in Dagenham, who was very quiet, to descended into, it was described in court as a vortex of drug taking and, you know, sexual assaults. He was working as a chef at a bus garage when he started committing his offences. He lost that job because he went to prison for lying about the first body, at which point they charged him and prosecuted him for perverting the course of justice, at no point thinking this liar might have murdered this kid who is dead in front of us. So he lost the job then, and after that, the drug taking really stepped up. He was taking meth, he was smoking weed, he was uh, taking GHB himself, I think, and he would basically have uh, just a constant stream of people coming in and out of his flat uh, they would watch pornography. He would rape some of them. And, yeah, it was, it was a very bleak existence by the time he was finally arrested. What was his life like as a young person then? Did he suffer some abuse? Did he come from a bad family? We don't we don't know if he suffered any abuse uh, either way, so I wouldn't like to speculate on that. What we do know is... So he was born in Southend-on-Sea in Essex, um, and then he moved to Dagenham when he was a toddler. Uh, to a big sort of working class housing estate called the Beacon Tree Estate. It was, it was the biggest council estate in England when it was built in the sort of interwar years. Uh, just a very normal working class East London slash Essex existence. He was very, very quiet, though. He never said anything to anyone. Uh, people at school thought he was deaf because he was so quiet. They were calling him the deaf kid instead of his actual name. He was frequently seen sort of um, in the shadow of his mother, when he was walking to school, clinging to her, if you like, he was just really, really quiet. He, he didn't, he didn't really give anything away. Although when I spoke to a, a school friend of his from his primary school days at Monteagle, he did say to me, "Look, I didn't suspect anything at the time. I was a child, but if you had to say that somebody you went to school with would turn out to be a serial killer, he'd be in the frame because he was just so weird." So you're saying that he was bullied then? I don't think he was bullied at least not bullied consistently or exceptionally. It's very easy when a serial killer gets caught for the press, and they did this, to focus on the bullied loner. Where did it all go wrong? The, the fact is that everything that he did is his fault. And when I spoke to his former classmate, who doesn't want me to say his name, but when I spoke to him, he said there wasn't any sort of systematic bullying of him that went on. There was nothing extraordinary. It's not like he was being beaten up or constantly called names or anything like that. He said it was just that he was so quiet we couldn't really socialise with him. So you get made fun of a little bit, but doesn't everyone at school? So no, I, I don't think this is a case of a bullied loner who was ill-treated all of his life because I just, I don't have the evidence for that. Over what time period did his killings occur? So the murders occurred from 2014 to 2015 over a 15 month period. Now, the first body was that of Anthony Walgate, who was a 23 year old fashion student. The reason I mention the 15 months is because when they found Anthony Walgate, they refused to investigate Port's electronic devices. Now, had they done so and actually bothered to look at the crime scene in front of them, what they would have seen was a man who was searching for very specific pornography that was centred on the drugging and raping of unconscious younger men, which is exactly what happened here and would have been obvious had they bothered to carry out these checks. They also found out, like I said before, that he had lied to them 
he actually called 999 himself, pretending to be a bystander who'd found the body. And they didn't think that was suspicious. So then when they arrested him for perverting the course of justice, he had to wait ages to get a court date because it's a relatively minor offence when you compare it to murder. It's not the sort of thing you're on remand for. So during that time, uh, he was just free to to do whatever, you know, to, to kill, to rape, sexually assault, to drug people. He went on to murder uh, Gabriel Kavari, who was a 22-year-old Slovakian who'd been staying on his couch. He then went on to murder Daniel Whitworth, who was a 21-year-old from uh, Gravesend in Kent, leaving an incredibly suspicious, fake suicide note on his body that literally had the line in it, by the way, please do not blame the guy I was with last night. He knows nothing of what I have done. The police didn't investigate it. It was suspicious before they even read that line because it was in his left hand, I believe, encased in a plastic wallet. So the message being, someone really wants you to read this note. Somebody really wants you to. And it mentions the guy last night trying to get him in the clear. Well, maybe that's worth investigating. Anyway, he then went to prison for perverting the course of justice. He served, I think he served just under three months of of an eight-month sentence. I mean, the maximum he would have served would have been four anyway, because you get out for good behaviour or whatever. Um, And if he would have served his full sentence, he would not have been free to murder Jack Taylor in September 2015. So we've got we've got three occasions here in which lives could have been saved. Gabriel, Daniel, and Jack would still be alive today if the police would have investigated would have investigated Anthony Anthony's death. So watching the Dennis Nielsen stuff, it's like he had a method of killing, like you get him drugged up or on alcohol, get him in the sleeping bag, and yeah. you know they'd be taken to the bath. Um, yeah. Did did the grinder killer have a, have a preferred method of killing, or did he use various methods? So with Stephen Port, it's not clear to me that he intended to end the lives of the people he murdered. That You can get done for murder in the UK if you willingly endanger someone to such an extent that you can't be said to seriously care whether they live or die. So his methods were very crude and very, very crass. He would lure them to his flat with lies on a social media or dating app. You know, he, he said to Anthony Walgate, I'll pay you £800 for the night and then started haggling when he got there. He would then surreptitiously slip them drugs. Uh, One way that he did this was by pretending that he was going getting lubrication, and he would sort of inject something in that area. So it was, and it was all done sort of in the dark, you know, like when the person was least suspected, when the person was at their most vulnerable and thought they were safe, it was... It was really cowardly, deceitful behaviour. But we have to remember, that's the only way for him to operate because this was a guy who couldn't look people in the eye. He's not the sort of person who's going to go down Soho uh, to some of the gay bars and charm a bloke. Like, he needed to lure people in. And then, in one case, one guy turned up to his flat. Um, he posted a picture of, like, a dark-featured man. And Stephen Port's a pale, balding, sort of blonde bloke. Um and this guy turned up to find a, a darkened flat with a chubby bloke looking at him who then left the flat and said, have fun. The bloke walked in and saw this, this saw Stephen in, in the bedroom. Stephen wouldn't turn on the lights or anything like that, said, let's, let's start having sex. He then felt a pinch around his anus and thought, I've got to get out of here. He ran over to the light, turned it on, said, said to Stephen Port, who are you? So this, these are the kind of methods he would use. You know, he's, he's not, he wasn't an upfront guy. He was a coward and he's very deceitful and very sloppy at covering his tracks as well, which makes it even worse that he wasn't caught sooner. 
So did some of his potential victims escape then? And did anyone go to the cops? Yeah, so when I was covering the trial at the Old Bailey, uh, there were a few survivors who came forward and told their stories. Some of them only reported him. He was reported for a, a, a suspected sexual assault way before the murders, but he was, I don't even know if he was charged with it. I don't even think he was charged with it. It sort of went nowhere. But then when all the murders became public and started circulating and it was obvious that he'd been arrested for these murders people started thinking that's that weird guy i had that experience with you know that that's that guy who i woke up and he was raping me that's that guy who's flat i fled in terror that's that guy who i met on a dating website when i was a student and all of a sudden there are three people in the room and i'm being sexually assaulted wow so what was the weight of evidence then that tipped the police to arrest him what was the weight of evidence I, I don't think it's fair to say there was a weight of evidence to arrest him because the evidence was overwhelming from the start what the, the reason that Stephen Port was arrested was because the sisters of Jack Taylor Donna and Jen pushed them to release some CCTV footage that they were basically unwilling to release as soon as that went out Stephen Port was identified because it showed him next to Jack Taylor in the final hours of Jack Taylor's life as soon as it went out, it was identified. It didn't occur to them at any point to think, all these bodies are dropping around us. Might we want to speak to that dodgy bloke who lied to us about the first one? It, it's just absolutely stunning. It's beyond me how this was overlooked to such a degree. And the accountability since as well has, has been non-existent. Not one person has been sacked over this. There were 17 coppers facing, uh, facing sort of hearings. You know, some of them were for serious disciplinary hearings not one of them was sacked most of them only one of them had a spoken interview with the police watchdog everyone else submitted it in writing and as peter tatchell told me when i spoke to him about this book it's really easy when you're putting together written statements so you know corroborate everything in advance and make sure you don't come off too badly so you know it's such a serious case four people dead why were there so many police failings in such a high-profile case like this? Why are there so many police failings? It's a really good question, um, which I do try and answer in the book without obviously being in the minds of the police officers. I think there are a few things going on. I think there are a few key points. I think the first thing when all this came out was people said, this is homophobia. The police do not care about gay people in the same way they care about other people. What I think was going on there, I do think there was homophobia, but I think it was a specific type of homophobia. This was a kind of homophobia whereby it wasn't that the police looked at these people and said, they're gay, I don't care, or I hate gay people, so I'm not investigating it. These were police officers who too readily accepted a narrative that these were the kind of young gay men who take loads of drugs in clubs and whatever, go on sort of dangerous dates and things like that and put themselves at risk. And, well, you know, they, they must be that sort of gay man. Now, it's not saying that people don't do that in real life. Some people do do that, and it's tragic. But the overwhelming evidence in this case was that these were young men who would not do that, according to all the family, all their friends, and the scenes were already suspicious. So the fact that they still allowed that perception to take over is homophobic, in my opinion. I think there were other things going on. I think the fact that they were men as opposed to women. I, th um, I, th I think that when a man drops dead in the street, it's it's... I don't know if it's human nature, but I think it is less shocking to people than if a woman is dead in the street. And also, if you're the police, you're supposed to overlook that 
sort of instinctive feeling that you might have and just do your job. Other factors, the fact that it was such a rough area. I mean, I lived in Barking and some of the people there are absolutely great, but you do notice when you're walking around that violence is a, a little bit more normal. It's not that shocking to, to walk past someone being stabbed in Barking. I, I did it myself when I was I was going to the shop and I, and I saw someone um, who'd just been stabbed and the police were all there. You know, I came out of a pub one night and some guy had half his ear sliced off in front of me. And I was just like, that 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 is barking. But again, as a police officer, you're you're not supposed to look at it and go, well, you know, this sort of thing happens in barking. You're supposed to go, why is this happening in barking? It's it's just it's not good enough. Just to clarify for the viewers, then sacked means fired. Sorry, people, yeah. <laughs> people people in America. So <laughs> it it just seems like there's something that goes back to like from Jack the Ripper to the Yorkshire Ripper, the victims are dehumanized. You know, it was debatable whether some of them were sex workers, but the media just, just was ferociously, you know, saying that this guy was slaying 100% sex workers. And therefore, if they're sex workers, their lives aren't as important as other people's lives. So would yeah. you say there's, there's parallels here? I would... I would bet money on the fact that when they found out that Anthony Walgate was an escort, uh, a part-time escort, I should add, um, I, I, I would I would bet that that factored into their decision making. Yeah, I don't usually like attributing motives or trying to get into someone's head because I'm not in their head, and, I, and you know I know the police are under loads of pressures, and, and and that's a factor too. But I think it's the only conclusion I can come to when you've got an obviously suspicious death in front of you. I think what happened was they found out about the escorting thing and they went, well, this is, I don't think they thought this lad's dead. He's an escort. I don't care. I think they thought, oh, right. Okay. So it makes sense that he was there for sex and it makes sense that he was taking drugs and it makes sense that he overdosed. It's, it's unacceptable either way because it was so obviously suspicious. And how far back does the Met uh, Police's history of failing to protect gay people go? And this is fairly recent. So have they made amends? In terms of how far back it goes, the, the most famous obvious case is uh, Dennis Nilsson, who murdered at least 12 young gay men. But the thing with Dennis Nilsson is he was really good at, at picking his victims. He picked people who were down and outs, who were evading the law themselves, uh, who had cut ties with the family, stuff like that. He then disposed of the bodies really well under his floorboards, putting organs in between the gaps in his fences so that parasites would eat them. So you can see how he went undetected. But what that case should have done in the 80s is served as a really harsh warning to police that this is a community that for some reason is under the radar to us and we need to improve that. Did they improve that in London? No, they did not. In 1990, Michael Booth was murdered. That murder, I think, remains unsolved to this day. Uh, you then had Colin Ireland in 1993. He murdered five gay men, and he specifically told the police when he was caught, I'd do it because they don't talk to cops. You know, wow. So th this this stretches back a long way, and there are other examples in my book of, of, of failings in terms of the gay community and policing in London and elsewhere. And by the time you get to Stephen Port, you really think, you know, this should have been sorted. There was a 2007 report by a watchdog called uh, Gallup, who are supposed to be, they're sort of like, um, sort of a liaison um, group that works between 
the gay community and the police in order to make things better so that things like Dennis Nilsson, Colin Ireland, etc., don't happen again. They published a report in 2007 telling the Met that they needed to get their act together sort of thing. And, you know, we're in 2014 and Anthony Walgate's being murdered. It's, it's, it's absolute madness. And in terms of going forward to your se- second point, I, I don't, I, I would like to be optimistic, but I don't have a lot of faith because at the moment, the, the commissioner is Cressida Dick. Now, this is a woman who is probably most famous for before she was commissioner being involved in the sh- deadly shooting of John Charles de Menezes in 2012. I think he was in South London somewhere, Stockwell Tube Station, maybe. Now, he, he, they suspected him of being a terrorist. It was completely wrong. An innocent man just lost his life, and now she's in charge. And it's all very well for the Met to do all this sort of PR stuff, you know, wearing rainbow lapels and doing posters about pride and painting the cars rainbow colours and all this stuff. But what, what, what's the point of that when you've got the Stephen Port case in the news? You've got new inquests telling the public exactly how badly you failed to stop gay people dying. I don't want the police force to put pride flags on their uniforms. I, I, I don't want that. I want them to police. I want them to focus on protecting gay people just like they should protect everyone else. So it sounds like you don't have much faith uh, going into the future then with this, Sebastian. Well, I, I, don't, I don't see how you can have faith and I, I, I don't think we should be complacent. You know, when they were referred to the IOPC police watchdog, the investigation took ages. There were loads of delays. Nobody got sacked. So it's like, okay, there's no accountability. They delayed publishing it until the new inquests into the deaths of the victims, because obviously the original inquests were hampered by the lack of police investigation. During those inquests, a bunch of stuff came out about police incompetence. It was, it was all stuff that we'd heard before, but it was back in the news sort of thing. And I'm sort of sat here thinking, but what, what what's being done? You know, no, nobody's lost their job over this. It's... It's, it's, it's just madness. And if, if you can't if, if you can't have a major push at reform after a case like this, then I don't see when you're going to bother. I just I, I just don't see it happening. And isn't Chrisella Dick the one who's just spiked the Grey report that's supposed to have exposed Boris Johnson? But I think she redacted it. I think she's been involved in some sort of redaction of the Sue Grey report, yeah, into the parties yeah. in number 10. Wow. So, yeah, not much hope there then. So well, I mean, I mean, there's also sorry to interrupt, but there's there's also just the fact that you know knife crime remains a massive problem in London, and it, it's not. I'm not saying it hasn't got any better at all since a certain year, but it's far from solved. You know, the the Met have got so many things on their plate, and what one of the officers said at the new inquest, you know, working in Barking, it was like watching plates spinning, and one would crash down, and you'd rush over to p- clear that up, and then another one would crash down, and that that is true. Like I believe that, but. I don't buy it as an excuse in the case of murders, in the case of four murders, because that should be top of your list. Well, the cops we speak to about the knife crime in London said that the media is completely misleading us because most of the knife crime in London, these ex-cops say, undercover cops, drug cops, Mm. say revolves around those young people competing for the black market in drugs created by drug laws. And the, the most dealt drug in the world is weed. So it just mm. seems an anachronism now that we've still got weed illegal creating this black market around yeah. which all this mayhem occurs. And I believe it could be solved very easily, but a lot of these politicians are stuck in the drug war dinosaur mind frame whereby they feel if they loosen drug laws in any way, they're going to lose votes by not being tough on crime. 
but yeah, it's not I, it's not good for society at all. I mean, I'm I'm basically a like very libertarian on the issue of drugs, although I acknowledge the harms that they can do and wouldn't necessarily recommend drugs to people. I I don't recognise the state's authority to tell me to put not to put something in my body as long as I'm not. Um, becoming a total people say yeah but you might become a burden on the nhs and it's like okay well we have to ban fags we have to ban booze we have to ban everything the thing is with the the, the knife crime relationship with drugs I, I really don't know how how you solve that because even if you make it legal there's still going to be some sort of black market that does it cheaper and i suspect that those people would then start fighting over that territory it's, it's a bit of a murky area to get into and i'm not an expert on knife crime and, and drug policy i should say yeah, it is problematic when they do make it legal and then the black market undercuts the legal flow. Mm. And that, as we've seen, that that can be a function of the taxes that are getting yeah. put on it as well. Yeah, because they would are, get taxed. Yeah, but we are seeing considerable success in some of the states whereby they're able to take that tax revenue then and put it into education for young people, drugs right. education right. in particular. And, and there's been been uh, dramatic reductions in crime. So I do think even though there are problems such as the black market undercutting, you know, it, it, I still think it's a move in the right direction to take that drug system mm. out of the hands of criminals and into the hands of governments whereby it's regulated, it's safe, people know what they're getting, there's not back, back street deals, SWAT team raids and all that other stuff. I think it will be a massive... Uh, savings for society and the taxpayers? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm sort of divided on the issue. I, I mean, if you, you were to ask me honestly what I think, I, I would say I think pretty much everything should be legal as long as you're not harming anyone else. But in terms of the actual effect of um, of decriminalising everything, I don't I, d I don't know how it would go. And, and I get what you're saying, whereby if, if you... If, at the moment, what I was saying, there might be a problem with the black market, but at the moment, what we have is a black market and that's it. So if you shrink that black market, then maybe there's less trouble. There's also the argument from the sort of right wing that I that I understand, um, which is that they get annoyed when people say, just take the criminal element out of it. Um, and I think they get annoyed because it's like, well, if you made assaulting someone legal tomorrow, it would take the criminal element out of it. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily solve the problem. Um, Although I, I think I, I I think I do swing more towards legalization, to be honest. I'm pretty like I say, I'm pretty libertarian. So they say if you take if you make assaulting people legal tomorrow, it's not gonna stop people assaulting people. Is that what they say? That, no, no, I'm, say? I'm 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 saying that um the argument would be if, if you if you can say that taking the take take the criminals out of drugs, well yeah. th those dealers could just go legal and sort of do it legally or or, or whatever. Um, although I imagine it'd be quite difficult for them to do that because they're already sort of criminals um, and they might not be able to break into the system if it's taken over by sort of big farmer or something like that. What I'm saying is that just because you make something not a crime anymore, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be harms to do with it. It just means there's, there's, there's going to be no crime. Exactly. And people yeah. have taken drugs since time immemorial. And all we can do is concentrate on harm reduction. We're never going to ever going to stop people taking drugs. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. We just need harm reduction and having it in the having the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world in the hands of the criminals, which has caused half a million dead in Mexico to all this mm -hmm. knife crime in London, is insane that it's a function of government policy that could be amended. Yeah, 
Yeah. I think I think just to sort of close off on this because I'm probably rambling on, but I, I think that <laughs> I think so. Like I think that there is one acceptable way um, to to ban drugs, um, and that is basically we legalize it, right? And then if we elect a government, say a very sort of activist government that has an ethical problem with, say, the cocaine trade and how it's affecting the countries in which it is produced, then you put an embargo, a trade embargo on cocaine coming coming from that country. So I, I understand that principle of it. I understand the idea that we're not going to buy this in the same way we're not going to use sweatshops, even though we do, let's face it. Um, I understand that argument, but I don't understand the argument of people kill each other over it in this country. Um, and it's like, well, yeah, but it's because it's scarce and it's addictive. That that might that that and, and also because they, they operate beneath sort of away from the scope of the law by definition. So once you've entered that world, you're already committing crimes and you have to defend your patch with more criminal behaviour because you have to show dominance. You're not operating within the legal system. Well, people are committing, are killing each other all over the world for it. It's probably one of the leading causes of murder worldwide right now is, is competing for the black market in drugs. Right. And I've heard arguments, you know, say that, well, if they haven't got drugs to commit violence over, these people are violent anyway, they're going to do other things. And I mm -hmm. think that's ridiculous because researching Pablo Escobar, Pablo Escobar was dirt poor. He was a psychopath. And they estimate he was worth up to $30 billion because of the profits from cocaine. He could source wow. a kilo of coca paste for $60 when a kilo of cocaine was going for 60000 in America. There has never been this big a profit opportunity for organized crime. He would have been the equivalent of a housing estate thug. But because yeah. he could have made, because he made billions through this black market, he was able to arm himself to the teeth, blow aircraft out of the sky, assassinate yeah politicians and it's it, it's that particular market that enables the level of violence that these psychopaths can then enact yeah so they can get their hands on that much money absolutely and just uh just to say uh quickly um uh, the that sort of made me laugh this because like the difference between a sort of criminal genius like that and stephen port is it's it's so vast like th this this guy is a moron do you know what i mean he shouldn't have been able to get away with anything. He shouldn't have been able to get away with selling a bit of meth on the side, let alone murdering four people. You know, he, he wasn't a kingpin. He wasn't intelligent. He was one of the most stupid people I've ever corresponded with from his letters, you know. It seems like a lot of these murderers get away with it. Almost like luck is on their side. And yeah. even, even you see that, some of them in the end have to give so many clues to the cops or turn themselves in. Mm. Didn't, didn't Kemper end up um, giving himself up, something like that? I'm not Edmund, sure, actually. Edmund Kemper, because he, he he said he would have just kept doing it and doing it. Yeah, um, right. But, but they give more, more and more clues until they, they finally get caught. He wanted to be put out of his misery, he said. So with oh Port then, what you so you wrote to the grinder killer in prison. Yeah. Oh, how, how did you initiate that? Uh, in the worst way possible. I uh, I sent him a letter, uh, a very high-minded letter, as speaking as a journalist, being like, you need to be held to account for your crimes. You've caused a lot of pain, and I'm going to hold you to account, and I think you owe it to people to send me a letter back. And obviously he didn't reply, because like, 
he, does, he doesn't care about what he's done. He's a scumbag. And he's, you know, anyone who can rape and murder people isn't going to be like, oh, yes, Mr. Journalist, I'm, I'm, I'm before you now and I'm sorry. So I, I noticed that another bloke had been writing to him and he'd kind of, he, he'd not lied, he kind of lied. He sort of pretended to be on his side a bit to get letters off him and stuff and then upload them to YouTube. So I was like, well, you know, I can lie. Um, so I basically created a, a character um, called Luke Baines. Uh, he's called Luke because Luke Skywalker and Stephen Port love Star Wars. And apparently there's someone in Transformers with which he's also obsessed uh, called something Baines. I've never seen Transformers, but I was like, fine. So I came up with this character, a uh, young gay guy, sort of person he would go for, very insecure, so open to Stephen bragging at him and, you know, being dominant and whatever. Uh, and I was just like, you know, I, I just said in a very badly written note. It was like, it looked like it'd been written with a hammer, this thing, because I'd faked bad handwriting and everything to <laughs> sort of be on his level. Uh, and I sent it off. I sprayed it with uh, aftershave and deodorant before I sent it off um, <laughs> because I was just throwing everything at it. I was like, if, you know, if this actually works, then, you know, good. And he wrote back to me, yeah. And we had we had exchanged a few letters, I think. I can't remember how many letters, but a few letters over a few months sort of thing. And, yeah, it was it was strange. It was all all right until he, he asked me for a picture. And I'd been in a few documentaries about his case, like going re really hard, sort of slagging him off and slagging the police off. So I basically panicked, didn't know what to do, tried to find a picture of me that didn't look like me, and then settled on begging one of my uh, best friends who I went to school with in Bolton to, to let me use his picture. And he he said, look no further. So I sent it. <laughs> <laughs> what were the most surprising revelations in these letters? Um, I don't know if there were like surprising revelations. And I've got to be careful about what I say because my lawyers um, are very cagey about me quoting from the letters, basically. So I can give you like the impression that I got of him like easily. He's very, very, very uh, ch like childlike, incredibly childlike. His his like priorities are things like, you know, I wish I could watch this film or that film. It's always kids' films. Um, yeah, he was he was very like um, he he would sort of do that. He would come across as like really childlike, but then in the next sentence he'd be like, "Yeah, I know a lot about physics, you know, and uh, I know a lot about this subject and that subject and whatever." Um, yeah, he's just sort of full of himself and, you know, giving you giving you relationship advice. You know, a, a guy who whose domestic relationships were plagued by violence and and that, those were his boyfriends. Like, you know, he was, the police were called on him, I think, I think for hitting his boyfriend or having some sort of physical row with him. Uh, and then he went on to do all this disgusting sexual assault, rape and murder. And he's giving advice from, you know, prison, just general advice. So... Yeah, it was really weird talking to him. Um, you know, he'd ask for sort of things for his cell, like, you know, little pictures or whatever. Um, so, yeah, he was just he was just a, a weird guy with terrible handwriting, terrible spelling. And I'm not saying that to be like, you know, a pretentious, I'm a writer, I know how to use a semicolon. I mean, his writing was like, it was it was virgin on unreadable. It was It was like it had been written by not just a child, but a struggling child. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was really bad. So, and it just, it just rammed home to me how, how thick he was, how stupid he was. And, you know, if one of the things that I say in the book 
is um is you know it how would this guy evaded police for so long was was he a, a psychopath and a really clever guy well no he wasn't he was the opposite of all of that he was completely inadequate in basically every way even he, he was even inadequate in getting people to to his flat for a date like he'd have to lie he'd have to you know lie about himself he couldn't go and meet them in a bar like i said he, and he'd have to use drugs to get what he wanted so he's a thoroughly unremarkable person in terms of in terms of intelligence and that's why the book's called easy kills because the police made it easy for him to kill by not investigating it and it shouldn't have been easy it should have been the hardest thing in the world for this bloke to get away with murder you just had a question come in from um one of my co-hosts matthew steeples let me see if i can find it about whether you've read some book where a guy approached a serial killer let me just scroll through all the chats let's see where's it gone um you know when you do oh here we go has sebastian read history of a drowning boy given it was a similar strategy used by mark austin to correspond with dennis nielsen I've not read that. I've read um, the Dennis Nilsson book I've read is Killing for Company by Brian Masters, which I think is one of the best books I've ever read. Well, I'll give that one a go, definitely, because the, the Nilsson case is, is just fascinating. And I mean, I was I was sort of a, a friend gave me that book um, when I was when I was when I was first started on Easy Kills uh, writing it because I had no idea how to write a book. And I was thinking, you know, how do you do structure and stuff like that? And I read Brian Masters and I was like, that's how you do it that is incredible it just draws you in and it you know it creates a narrative and you you know you feel like you know the for want of a better word that you know what would be characters in a novel um i thought that was excellent and the tv show that um what's his name david tennant did as well uh based on that book was fantastic yeah but i'll give that one a go what, what's it called again drowning boy or something let me see if i find that again um oh Steeples has sent another question in for you. Let's just go oh. for this. Was there any evidence of Stephen Port having been abused by anyone prior to his crimes? So didn't I ask that earlier? What yeah, you asked you that earlier. Made him go down the, what do you think made him go down the route he took? Oh, that's a good question. What made him go down the route that he took? Um, I think the the simplest answer and the most obvious answer from the evidence is, uh, is sexual obsession and drug taking you know he 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 went from i'm not i'm not going to say that he was ever a normal bloke he was obviously odd and uh, you know a criminal um he went into being an escort and then at some point he became obsessed with this rape fetish and he would just do anything that he could to get people back to his flat to do that now there's an interesting point with Stephen Port in terms of why I think he took the route he did, where he was just taking drugs all day and watching porn all day. He became obsessed with it. And they said at his trial um, that he descended into a vortex of drug taking, his obsession turned into a compulsion. And again, that's not me letting him off the hook for anything. You know, he, he didn't need to do any of this, but I think he was just obsessed with, with rape, which is a, a, a horrible thing to say and to think but he he was and the the drugs obviously will have played some sort of role in terms of he would have been awake more so he would have been able to watch things more and become more obsessed with it they would have lowered his inhibitions made him more confident to carry out these disgusting acts 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think it was. I think this was a guy who basically started out with uh, a kind of fetish, um, and it turned into a, an obsession and one in which you know it wouldn't be enough for somebody to sort of play dead for him and for him to satisfy his fetish. Like he needed to rape people. And when you set out writing to this serial killer, what were you hoping he would divulge in his responses to you? I was more. I was more hoping. Okay, the, the main. I'll tell. You, I was going to say I, I wanted to know what sort of person he was, um, but that's not really true. That's we already we already know what sort of person this is. I think um, the main thing that I wanted to know um, was about his life inside. I wanted to know how a rapist was found in prison. I wanted to know how, um, how if if he was having sex as well in prison because I found out. Um, this this was in the news like ages ago, so it's not like exclusive information or anything. But like I found out that he was. He was dating uh, Britain's worst paedophile, Richard Huckle, in prison. No, they, 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 they were having sex in prison. So when the I was writing wrote, to him, the guy who wrote that manifesto. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he had a manifesto. Oh, he got murdered, didn't he, Huckle? Yeah, he got. Yeah, so he was having sex with That's Stephen disgusting. Paul. He was one of the most disgusting characters I've ever come yeah. across in, in in crime. Total scumbag. But then oh, he, he yeah, was dating they, him. Yeah, well, I don't know if dating is the right word. They were having sex in prison, and it was an open secret. Um, anyway, so so I wanted to know about that really, because you know, so I kept on asking him about you know. Oh, this, what, is, this what, just takes it to a whole new level of abomination. Hearing that, I had no it's, idea. It's absolutely rancid, isn't it? It Good makes your skin crawl. Yeah, but um, I wanted to know about that, so I was constantly hinting, <sighs> being like, you know what, you know what's. Um, what are your mates like and stuff like that? Because he mentioned that he had friends and and that they were really good to him and whatever. And I was just thinking, please, like, tell me what the hell happened with Richard Huckle? Like, how does that even start? Like, I just, it's just so weird and bizarre. Um, but I, but I, I never found out. And of course, we we can't find out off Richard Huckle because he got he got stabbed to death in uh, in prison, didn't he? If people want to Google Richard Huckle, what he did, it's probably too much to get it's, into on my channel. It, yeah, but it's, yeah. Is there any way you could describe what he did in a in a safe way that won't get me in trouble? Yeah, I think so. Um, Richard Huckle basically um, posed as uh, a kind of Christian missionary teacher um, abroad um, and systematically abused, sexually abused children and then kept a kind of log that was a manual for other paedophiles um, yeah, it's like an instruction was manual, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was totally evil. Oh, one of the most evil people to ever exist. Yeah, this is yeah, yeah. Good grief! So, have you got any other projects coming up along these lines, or is this a bit too dark for your subconscious? Um, I did. You know, I actually did find it quite upsetting to write, and I had to. Any time I got upset, I had to just be like, "Whoa, you know, you don't get to be." actually upset about this as, as horrible as it is to, to to read about it and it did you know upset me i was just thinking like imagine being the families like if, if i'm a, if i'm getting sort of emotional writing it and reading it over and over again and getting angry about it how how the hell did they feel and how amazing is it as well that while they were feeling all that they basically solved the case for the police it's it's amazing um but in terms of other projects um i've got a few ideas um for a second book, I'm trying to settle on one, so I'll, I'll keep it to myself for now. Mm. But um, but yeah, watch this space, I suppose. 
yeah, well, we'd love love to have you back on um, to yeah, discuss your second book. Is there anything you feel that I've messed up, missed out, Sebastian, that you'd like to tell the viewers? Uh, I don't think so, other than I'm going to show you the book. This is the book. It's on Easy Amazon. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in Asda for anyone in the UK. WH uh, Smith Travel, stuff like that. So, yeah, but I, I, do, I do want people to read it um, because I feel, I feel like when there's a documentary on, or a newspaper article, I, f- I feel I, f- I feel like it can fade from public consciousness. Whereas I feel like a book um, is maybe a little bit more permanent. That's why I did it. I, I know as well um, that uh, I saw the other day um, on social media, I think, that Anthony Walgate's mum also has a book out um, about her perspective um, on the case. I think it's out in February. Um so yeah, everyone should check that out as well, and and everyone should as well sign the petition that Donna and Jen Taylor have been sharing on social media, which is basically as, asking for actual accountability from the police. It's on um, change.org. I can try and send it to you if that helps. All right, brilliant, Sebastian. Stay tuned, viewers. I've got a few announcements about live streams today. There's going to be a few of them coming up. And Sebastian's links are all in the description box below this video. So if people want to reach out to you, Sebastian, what's your preferred platform? Do you know what? I am an absolute Luddite with uh, with social media. Uh, I, I hate Twitter. I can't you stand hate it. Twitter? I hate it. It, it winds me up. I just, I, you wouldn't invite like everyone in the world to your house to give, to give you their opinion, would you? And, and it's, yeah, like, that, it's like the biggest conversation in the world on any subject, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's not a conversation. It's just shouting and talking past each other. I mean, if if if, if people want to, <laughs> I don't know. If if people are desperate to get in touch with it, then um, you can. I, I'm I'm on Facebook, and if I see a message from a stranger coming in, I, I will read it um, before deciding whether I want to reply. So, yeah, just um, just search me on Facebook. He says dreading it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Sebastian. You have a good rest of your day. Nice one, Paul. Cheers for this. Really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. Bye. 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 All right.